Would you bow in prayer with me as we ask God to do what we trust him to do, and that is to take his word that is alive and active and to make it alive and active to us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would once again help those of us who perhaps might be weary this morning or find ourselves uh, difficult to focus. We pray, Lord, that you would take your word as we look through it, as we examine a glorious theme that is throughout the scriptures, that we might, Lord, appreciate another attribute of who you are and the greatness of you, our God. And Father, we also pray that we wouldn't just think about these things, but these, this aspect of you would be applied to our hearts and that we would be changed as a result of who you are and knowing you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One reason that we can confidently rely upon the scriptures, knowing that they're accurate and reliable, is because we find in the pages of Scripture a number of unflattering, I don't know if that's the right word, but mentions about people who wrote the Scripture, who contributed to writing parts of it, they're portrayed in so, such unflattering ways. For example, Peter, as you know, the Apostle Peter wrote two of the New Testament epistles, uh, and, and that in so doing, he did so even though he was a disciple that we read about in the Gospels, who failed again and again and again and again. I won't go through all of them, but just be reminded that it was Peter who spoke to Jesus one time when Jesus predicted his death, and Peter says, Mm-mm, no, no, uh, Lord, you are not going to do that. Calls him Lord and Master, then says, no, no, I'm going to rebuke you, you're wrong. And Jesus then ended up saying, get behind me, Satan. That wasn't a very good uh, thing to have said of you, I'm sure. And then Peter, of course, promised and said, listen, I'll never disown you, Jesus, never, even upon, uh, even if my life is threatened. And of course, before the end of that day, Peter, as you know, denied our Lord Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And even though Peter then was restored, he was given opportunities to have very powerful and significant roles within the early church as the church first got started, starting there in the day of Pentecost. It is true, though, that years later, that we read in Paul's writings in Galatians that Peter again goes way off track. He fails in a very public and, and uh, significant way, and Paul calls him out on it, calls him by name, and includes it in his letter that we still have today, saying, Peter, you failed. You goofed again. It seems to me it's no wonder that with this long list of the things that Peter has on the record that we can read much about, that Peter, along with Paul, made much of the grace of God. Think about it. As you read through Peter's writings, it's not, we are not surprised that Peter, having been forgiven, having been given undeserved favor by God, over and over and over again, it's Peter who celebrates the God in 1 Peter 5.10. I've listed the text for the sermon today, although we're going to go all over the place. But the point here, Peter says, is that it is God is the God of all grace. If there's anything that you ought to celebrate, it's the fact that we read in the Scriptures that God is a God of grace. And this morning, our, in our time we have this morning, I want us to look into the Word of God. I want us to search for answers to the following questions regarding the grace of God. The first question we're going to try to answer is, what is so amazing about God and His grace? What's so amazing about it? Secondly, we're going to look at in what ways has God's amazing grace been abused or misused or misunderstood over the years? 
And then lastly, I want us to think through, as we always try to do, to end on some practical applications to God's amazing grace in everyday life. So first of all, we're going to reflect on the amazing God of grace. In Exodus 34, Moses had asked God to show his glory to him while he's on Mount Sinai. Lord, show me your glory, he says. And in answer to that request, God, who has already revealed his law and his standards, his moral law to Moses and therefore to the children of Israel, in answer to that question, God then chooses to show another encouraging sign, a word of hope for those who now, having seen the standards and heard what God expects them, and realize they'll never meet up to those standards. The more you look at it and read it, the more you realize, oh, I failed here, I failed here, I failed here, I failed there. With that realization, Exodus 34, we read, The Lord, the Lord God, this is God speaking to Moses, revealing His glory. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God reminds him, I am a gracious God. It is no wonder that throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament particularly, we find even in the four or five different psalms, the psalmist alliterate and, and continue to re- rehearse the same phrase, that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. It's repeated on and on. Why is that? It's because hopeless, helpless sinners revel in the unmerited favor of God, that God is gracious. Well, I want us to fast forward a little bit. I don't have time to fully explore all the Old Testament, but consider in John's Gospel, chapter 1, where John affirms that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one sent from God. He is God in human flesh, and that He possesses the same glory as the God who revealed Himself on Sinai. You say, what kind of glory did Jesus have? Did he, did he shine all the time? Was he, was he glowing? Was he, did people just fall down in front of him because they couldn't take the, 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 uh, the magnitude of his brilliant glory? No, that was only done at one time on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we read in John 1.14 that Jesus as God incarnate, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the one only begotten from the Father, and now what's unique about Him? He is full of grace and truth. Jesus reveals the glory of God, the God who does have glory, as one who is full of grace and truth. And John goes on to point out that Jesus was not just a person who occasionally displayed a little bit of grace here and a little bit of grace there, but we read in verse 16 of John 1 that for the fullness of His fullness we have received in Jesus Christ, it is grace upon grace. What does that mean? That means that God has displayed a superabundance of grace to the human race through Jesus Christ, particularly to those who are His followers, to those who trust Him and believe upon Him. So to answer the question, what's so amazing about God and His grace, I would start off by saying that the God is the fact that God is willing to treat His creatures not according to their own merit or worth, but according to His own abundant kindness, His own overflowing generosity. That, my friends, is amazing. The fact that we have rebelled against God, the fact that we have gone our own way, I want us to think about this for a moment as we think about grace. First thing I've got there, another blank under your point number one, God's grace is free. 
God's grace is free. Grace cannot be bought. Grace cannot be earned by good character or good works. That goes against every grain of what we do in our culture today. Because our culture is all about earn your way. Do good, do work hard, you'll earn your way into better things in life. This is not the way God operates. Grace was bestowed, if grace was bestowed on the basis of some action that we took, it would no longer be grace. Here's an example. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 4, which is page 1342 in your pew Bible. I'm just going to read two texts quickly here from Romans. We'll start in Romans 4, and then we're going to back up to Romans 3. So find Romans 4, page 1342, verses 4 and 5. Now this is an example of how people are saved on the basis of faith, trusting in Christ, and then God deals with us in grace. And Abraham is an example of that. But listen to this text. He says, verse 4, Now to him who works, that is, who is doing good works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you're working for your salvation, it's not on, you don't receive it on the basis of grace. You've had to work for it. So it's a debt you're owed. But Paul goes on to say, But to him who does not work, but believes on Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. He's saying that God deals with us in grace, which means it's free. You don't earn it. It's not something you can buy, not something that you can gain on your own and deserve it. Now turn back a page to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 24, Paul also emphasizes the unearned benefits that are a result of God's gracious work in Christ in salvation. Romans 3.24, being justified as a what? A gift. Being justified, some translations say, freely by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So salvation cannot be bought, it cannot be earned, it cannot be won by any particular person. And this is why Archbishop Temple once said, the only thing of my own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I require to be redeemed. The only thing I bring to salvation is the fact that my sin has messed me up and therefore I'm in need of grace. That is so true, my friend. Grace is free. Praise God, it's free. But grace is not only free, it is ill-deserved. Some people say undeserved, ill-deserved. You see, every sinner, and that includes absolutely all of us here, every sinner deserves eternal condemnation, punishment for the ways in which we have broken God's laws. But the gospel, and what makes the gospel such good news, is the fact that everyone who believes and fully trusts in Jesus Christ is justified on the basis of grace. Now listen to the logic here of Ephesians 2, as I just sort of summarize what, Peter, what Paul says about the wonders of how much we don't deserve to be saved and the wonders of what it means to be saved and how God has given us what we don't deserve. He starts off the chapter in chapter 2, verse 1, of saying that all of us, all of us sinners, we're dead in our sins, indulging in the desires of our flesh, by nature, we're children who deserve the wrath of God. Verse 3, but God. 
even though that's what we deserve, we deserve to receive His wrath, but God, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ, and then He puts His parenthesis, by grace you've been saved. Do you realize you don't deserve this? Do you realize that you were the person who was living according to your desires to do what you want to do, which was totally opposite what God wants you to do? And God, even when we're dead in our transgressions, makes us alive in Christ by grace. You've been saved. Verse 7. In order that in the ages to come, God might show what? How lousy you are? And make that make much of that? No, he's going to make much of what? The surpassing greatness of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The fact that we are so undeserving and that we receive his grace is all the more amazing about how that glorifies God and gives us even more reasons to show forth the greatness, the surpassing greatness of His kindness toward us in Christ. It's unbelievable that He would do that. We're His enemies. Every spiritual blessing that comes to sinners through the gospel is on the basis of grace. And I record some verses there in your notes to show you, give you a chance to look that up this week to find the connection between grace and all that you receive as a result of your salvation. Justification is is on the basis of grace. Faith, even faith, the faith you have to believe is by grace. Forgiveness of sin is by grace. Salvation is by grace. Consolation and hope you have in Christ is all on the basis of grace. Undeserved favor. As if that's not amazing enough, let me give you another reason why God's grace is amazing. It's because God's grace is also sovereign. Sovereign. We go back to Ephesians 1, the text that we read earlier this morning in which we celebrate the fact that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestined us to adoption as sons according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of what? Of His grace. That God sovereignly acted in certain ways so that it might bring glory to His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, can any person honestly claim that you deserve to be rescued from sin and adopted by God? Are you going to say, you know, I really think that that was something that was coming to me because I did X, Y, and Z, God? Of course not. And this is what J.I. Packer puts in his quote. I think I put this in your notes where he says, only when it is seen that what decides each man's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins and that this is a decision which God need not make in any single case can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. What he's saying there is that God is sovereign. In his granting of grace, he is sovereign. He is not obligated to show grace to anybody, especially to me or to you. And if God was not gracious, my friend, we would have no reason to hope. If God was not gracious, you would have no remedy for sin. If God was not gracious, you would have no escape from the consequences of our rebellion. My friend, if you don't see that God is amazing because He is gracious, then you need to keep praying that God will open your eyes to see the glories of how gracious and kind He is to us. It is free. It is undeserved. It is sovereign. 
Now I want to move quickly to another brief thought here because when people hear about the greatness of God's grace, some people have heard it is so great and so amazing that they take it and run in the wrong direction. Because when you hear about the fact that we really don't deserve it and God gives us favor we don't deserve and you're like, well, man, that just doesn't seem, that seems too good to be true. And some people hear that and they begin to sort of draw wrong conclusions. And this happens in Romans chapter 5. If you want to turn there, you can just turn a few more pages. In Romans 5, Paul has presented the glories of God's grace as a result of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, Paul has talked about the role of the law and the law as God gave his law, his moral law, and he revealed the fact that this is the standard to which we're called to do and to be and to live and to even have desires in those areas. And obviously, the more you study the law, the more you realize, oh my goodness, look at my sin. I've failed in, in even more areas the more I look into it. And notice verse 20, where sin increased because of the, uh, the being compared to the law, the more we look at the law, grace abounded all the more. One commentator translated it this way. He said, he said, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. I like that. Superabounded. Because it talks about how it triumphed over the magnitude of our, of our sin. And as we're held to the high standards of God's law, the more sin is magnified and it increases. And Paul goes on to say that Jesus' righteousness and his, his righteous life, his atoning death, that because of these things, his grace increased all the more. That his work of grace triumphed over all that sin that was revealed because of the law. You say, wait a minute. Down through the years, people have said, wait a minute. Hold on now. If I sin a great deal, and if God's grace superabounds the greatness of my sin, well, does that mean that I have permission to sin as freely as I want? Because I have this enormity of grace that will always be greater than my sin? Now, that's twisted thinking, but that's how some people think. And Paul anticipated that kind of distorted way of thinking about grace. And so the answer, Romans 6, 1, shall we sin that grace may abound, may increase greater? Paul's answer was, may it never be. Or another way of saying it is, no way, Jose. He's, he's saying, of course not. That's ridiculous to think that. That's a misunderstanding of God's grace. And he goes on then to say, don't you understand what salvation happened? If you have come to Christ and you've been joined to Christ by faith, you were joined in his death. And when he died, he died to sin. And because he died for sin, he died to pay for your sin, to suffer that punishment and your shame. How can you flagrantly going on, carelessly sinning, if you've been joined to Christ who showed his hatred for sin and paying that awful penalty on the cross? He says it makes no sense. And so various saints have, through the years, various godly people have, have tried to address this, this twisted thinking about grace. They take grace and they run with it and go off in the wrong direction about increasingly becoming more sinful and celebrating God's grace. I've got freedom to do whatever I want now. German pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer finally finished his biography. This thing is like this massive thick. But I made it through there. Very interesting story. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship and because he was concerned about too many people saying, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but it didn't make any difference in their life. They just went through the motions and didn't seem to make any impact in their life at all. 
And so he wrote these words in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he addressed this concept of cheap grace. Cheap grace, he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Unquote. If you want to follow this through, there's more signs of this being a problem within the early church. Because the book of Jude alludes to the fact that there are people who are going to rise up, even within the church, who are false teachers. And they're going to make such crazy claims about this grace concept that they're going to teach a false gospel that takes the grace of our God and they're going to go in the direction of living a licentious life, a life that's totally out of control, immorality everywhere, no restraints, do whatever you want to do. And they are going to trumpet that as a way of saying, well, this is what it means to live by grace. Jude verse 4. And down through the ages, people who have professed to be a Christian have said similar types of things or made similar kinds of professions and they have distorted and corrupted the biblical concept of grace and they've turned it into something that is a self-satisfying, sinful lifestyle of immorality and ongoing sin that's flagrantly done and they don't care about anything about the fact that their sin caused Christ to suffer on that cross. And I say to you, my friend, that proves that they've never understood nor fully applied it to their own hearts, the true gospel. Now, can grace be abused? Absolutely. Absolutely. You shouldn't be surprised by that. It has happened in the biblical times in the first century. It happens even today. Now, here's a great way to correct all that is to look at grace taught in Titus chapter 2. Paul gives instructions to Titus regarding what does it mean for Jesus, who is the grace of God, come down incarnate among us and bringing the gospel to us by his life and death. And he says, the grace of God, Titus 2, 11 and 12, instructs us not to embrace ungodliness, not to celebrate worldly desires, but he says to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. If you really understand grace and the grace of God has been applied to your heart and you understand the wonders of being forgiven, on the basis of grace because of Christ, then it would result in your life in hopefully beginning to see more and more evidence of a sensible, righteous, godly life in this present age. So the more we know the Word, the more we understand grace can be abused, my friends. Well, let's talk about how do we apply an understanding of the grace of God to our own hearts and lives. And that's where I want to land our sermon here this morning. Point number three. I want us to reflect upon applying God's amazing grace to everyday life. And the first thing I would just say this to you is, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. You see, the grace of God comes to us and confronts all of us who are proud sinners. And the grace of God confronts those of us who like to... Love, we love to earn our own way. We love to claim, oh, I pulled up my boots with my own, my own, I pulled my bootstraps up my own strength. I've brought myself out of this, I've done this, and I've accomplished this. And we are just geared that way. And the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace comes to us 
as people who make their own contribution to their own salvation and who think of themselves, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a better person and God will someday give me a reward. So many people think that they will one day reach heaven because they deserve to be there. Because they've come up with some kind of scale system and I'll just do a few more things that will give me a little bit more and therefore I'll find my way there because I've worked hard to get there. And they think to themselves, I don't need grace. I'm confident that I am more deserving than that person over there or that guy over there or that scoundrel over there or this person I read about in the newspaper over there. What an idiot. Look what he did. And they've compared themselves to other people, put themselves on a scale, and they said, I don't see any need for grace. And Jesus in Luke 17, boy, does he bring out an illustration of that, doesn't he? Where you get this religious person standing up there saying, well, I'm so glad I'm not like this guy and this guy and this guy. Meanwhile, there's a guy who is tremendously corrupt, and he's known as a criminal, and he's hated by so many people, and all he loves is money for so many years, and he can't even lift his eyes to God. He says, have mercy upon me, O God. But there are those who find themselves more like the religious person in the story, and they see themselves as in no need of grace. They've never been humbled by the weight of their sin. They've never measured themselves by the law of God. They've always measured themselves by somebody else who's worse than they think than they are. They're self-reliant. They pride themselves on the things they've done, the things that they have avoided doing. Some of us like to keep a list. Oh, well, I've never done that. I've never done that. I've never done that. And they think of themselves as being superior to people who they think have already done those things. And we've got this system by which we try to prop ourselves up. Believing someday that we will gain merit before God because we're not as bad as that guy or that lady. But my friend, let me tell you something. Grace is treasured only by, the grace of God is only treasured by people who approach God as spiritual paupers, who are beggars, who have nothing to offer God, who are bankrupt. It is those who readily admit that they deserve to be condemned, that they have nothing to offer God. They are the ones who say, this is amazing grace. I need it desperately. And that's the first step my way into the kingdom is when you get to that point. You see, grace is amazing to those who extend their empty hands of faith and who cry out to Jesus, save me, rescue me from all this mess of my life and the awful consequence I'm going to have to face because of it. Rescue me. I have nothing to give you. I come just as I am. The wonderful truth is that, my friend, for those who extend those arms that there's a Savior who died on the cross for you, who provides forgiveness to you because He paid that debt for you as an act of grace in assuming your debt. And all the things that He did in keeping the law perfectly, He gives as a gift to you by grace, received just by faith, empty hands. If that doesn't knock your socks off, I don't know what will. It continually amazes me that Jesus would be that gracious to an awful sinner like me. But that is offered to any and all, my friend, to those who will humble themselves and admit your need of grace. I want to stop here, though, and I want to just make it very clear. Some of us have thought, well, that was a time in my life in the past that may have taken place, but I don't see much need for God's grace in my life now if that's really for people who are lost, those for unbelievers. My friend, Every disciple of Jesus Christ 
desperately, desperately needs God's grace every day. Continually. Because the followers of Christ need to continually celebrate as we fight against the tendency we have to focus on our outward performance. We start keeping track of how well we're doing. How well am I performing here? Ooh, didn't do so well today. I guess God's not going to want to spend much time with me. I guess I'm sort of on his bad side now. And we have a whole process by which we measure ourselves based on our performance and our tendency in that direction. There's also a tendency in which we magnify our failings. We magnify uh, all of our guilt. And we're overwhelmed by that. We're filled with shame. And we've lost sight of the grace of Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges in his book, which I commend to your reading, The Discipline of Grace, I have a quote in your notes in which he says this, powerful quote, your worst days, my worst day and your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. I don't get one amen? Okay. And your best days, your best days when you think you've done all the right things, when you think you've read your Bible long enough, you think you've had some time in prayer, you think you've done all these things just right, your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. Boy, he's got it, man. He's got the understanding of grace. And our identity, our status before God, my friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is based entirely on Christ and His atoning death and His victory over the grave. It is not based on your performance or the lack of such. And day by day, Romans 5.2 says that we, if we are justified by Jesus Christ on the basis of faith, we are what? We stand in grace. That's where we are. That's where we live day by day. I'm standing in grace. That's the state I'm in. And our motives then, as a Christian, because of grace, is that I'm to live my Christian life not as an attempt to gain God's approval so that he might give me the thumbs up at the end of the day. Hey, you did a good job today. You're on my good side today. It's not that. God's grace has already been bestowed, and so therefore we live out of that grace because I have failed, I will fail, I continually fail to meet those standards, and I've received grace from Christ, and I'm therefore compelled to live for Christ not out of duty, not out of this obligation that I have to, have to, have to, have to, have to, or otherwise I might get the thumbs down. But I live for Christ, why? Because I love Christ, because I've received grace. Because I'm so messed up and I continually fail and fall short. My motive is because grace now has produced in me the fruit of gratefulness. I am amazed by grace and I'm always so thankful that He deals with me on the basis of grace and therefore my desire to live for Him and for His glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ, he says, controls me, constrains me. It is the real operating force in my life. It's the love of Christ, my love for Jesus. Not because of duty. And some people, I think many, so many of us look at God and we see God as with the wagging finger. That's not the God of grace. The God of grace says, look at my son, Lord Jesus. Look at the grace he's shown you on the cross. Don't you know you're forgiven already? Don't you know you're loved already? Live it out now. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. You're forgiven. The love of Christ controls us. Oh, may that be true. May the grace of Christ lead us into being controlled by God's love. I want to move to a next point. 
Point letter B, if we understand the grace of God, hopefully it will help us resist the promptings of pride. The promptings of pride. I'm sure none of you have a problem with this issue. It's just me, but i got a problem with pride. And the grace of God, as we think about it day by day, remember the, the grace of God. Hopefully it's going to help us realize that, that pride is so ugly. It is so offensive to God. And so James 4, 6 echoes Proverbs 3, and he says to this, God is opposed to the proud. That is, people who don't think they need grace. <laughs> That's a proud person. God is opposed to those people like that. But he gives grace to those who are humble. So humility relinquishes the desire to call the shots, you see. Humility submits to God. Humility says, I'm going to live under his authority. Humility says, I'm going to live under his wisdom and his wise ways. I'm going to follow his plans and his purposes, his sovereignty, his providence. I am not God, so therefore I put myself under him. I ask the question, you think about it, who are we to second-guess God? And who are we to hold grudges against God for his all-wise providence when his when his plans for us lead us into difficulty and struggle and our plans go awry? Who are we to say, you know, God, I resent that. God opposes the proud. He, what? he gives grace to the, to the humble. There's a lot of thought we should give to that on a regular basis. What, what areas is pride showing forth itself in my life? Another area we want to think about grace being applied is letter C, is we need to minister to other people using our spiritual gifts. As those who have been recipients of God's grace, we're encouraged to use spiritual gifts that God has granted us. I think George talked about this earlier in the first hour downstairs about how so many people have been given gifts by God. We're to use them not just to advance ourselves, but to help other people and to, for the glory of God, build up the body of Christ. So that in 1 Corinthians 12, you've got a church that's all fragmented. People don't get along with each other. There are these little cliques. And, and they're using gifts in ways that says, well, I've got this gift, and so I'm better than you are. And Paul says, don't you understand the grace? The fact that you have a gift comes from the same word from which we get grace. It's a gift. It's given to you by God. So use it not for your own selfish reasons. Use it to bless those around us, to care for other people. Verse 25, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Care for people around you. Be involved in helping other people. Don't become so absorbed in yourself. Use your gifts to build up other people. So that Peter says, in 1 Peter 4, he says, we're to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There are so many different gifts in the body. Just be glad to use whatever your gifting is, whatever you enjoy doing in ministry. Just do it and help and bless other people. My friend, one of the greatest contexts for that to happen is in a growth group where you can be involved and be take part in the fact that you could be involved in somebody else's life on a regular basis and pray for them, and take an interest in them, and encourage them, and hold them accountable, and all that kind of thing that goes on. Rather than be absorbed in ourselves. Well, there's much more we could say about that. Let's look at letter D. Letter D is that we're to be a dispenser of grace. You say, what in the world? A dispenser of grace? Well, follow me here. Grace of God... As we've said in earlier weeks, there's different kinds of attributes of God. There are the communicable ones. That means that we can also similarly imitate God on some level in those attributes. There are other attributes of God that we cannot imitate because it's uniquely God. And so that we're not God, so we can't do that. But grace is one of those that we can, to some degree, imitate. Now, 
God showers us with grace in Christ so that we might be a channel of that grace to other people. So follow me here. Every day, I have this little ritual where I take my pitcher here, my Brita pitcher, and I've got my water that's been there overnight in the refrigerator, and I take my little, I won't take the top off, but I take it and I fill up my water bottle and I fill it up out of this pitcher, and then the next thing I do is that I assume somebody else is going to want to use the thing, so I'll put it under the spigot and I turn the water on, and next thing you know, what am I doing? I'm filling it up because it has a little handy-dandy little opening right here. See that? You can put that right under the spigot. You turn the thing on. It fills up with water, and then it filters that water down there. It's ready for the next guy to use. A pitcher is designed to receive and to pour out, right? And what good is this pitcher if I send it up on the shelf filled with water just sits there all the time just for display? That's not what it's designed to do, right? So similarly, if you think about the grace that God is pouring into your life where he says, I love you, I've forgiven you, I have a purpose for you, I've given you a new identity, not because you deserve it, because I've just chosen to show you favor. If God continually does that in us, then the scriptures say what? That is to really sort of percolate within our hearts so that after a while, by God's grace, what I say to other people will not be words of criticism and words that destroy and words that bring pollution into their mental thoughts and images and corrupt kind of things and, 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 and all sorts of words that tear down. But in Ephesians 4, 4.29, he says, use words that edify. Use words that are, that are, that are, are, are gracious words, that, that are words that give grace to other people in what you say. Folks, we've got to work on that, especially in our homes. Our words need to be words that are gracious words. There's different ways you can rebuke your children and correct your children or your husband or your wife or your kid or whoever. You can do it with grace or you can do it with a sternness and with a critical spirit and with a, a way in which you tear down people. The more we are filled up and, and, and we are, that God has poured His grace into us, the more to pour out, what? Words to unbelievers, Colossians 4, in which He says, when you talk with other people who are not believers, may they understand there's a grace that you're seasoning your words with so that they begin to say, wow, that's amazing that God is so gracious to you. It's amazing how you, you've been, you admit your faults like that. You can admit you're a person that does this, that, and whatever. How is it that you do that? Because God showed me such grace because I'm a mess. Our words show forth grace even to unbelievers so that we don't come across with this I'm better than you attitude. And I would encourage you to look at Luke 4.22 sometime and notice what Luke gives a little glimpse into what Jesus' his conversations were like. People noticed that Jesus in his speech, it says that people wondered at Jesus' gracious words. Has anybody ever wondered that about you? About your gracious words? Wouldn't that be great to be able to throw people a curveball and hear gracious words of us instead of hearing what they hear from everybody else? Two more real quick points. I know you only have one in your notes, but I'm going to throw another one in there because I'm just amazing things keep coming to my head. I want to number a letter E. Claim God's promise in times of affliction. Claim God's promise. In times of affliction. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. What does God say? What does Jesus say to Paul? When he says, look, I, this, this trial is too much for me. Please take it away. Please take it away. Please take it away. Three times. The answer comes back, my grace is 
sufficient. What that means is there's ongoing suffering, there's ongoing trial, there's ongoing affliction. It doesn't go away. You ever have a problem like that in your life? Listen to that promise. My grace is enough for you in this situation. Rely on it. I'm a gracious God and you in the middle of your suffering. What a huge difference it makes if we meditate on that when we suffer and are ready for that. Now, last thing's not in your notes. You can throw it in there if you want. Letter F is pray with confidence. Pray with confidence. And here I have in mind Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, where he says what? We can come boldly to the throne of what? Throne of grace. We don't come to a throne of condemnation, a throne that says, nah, 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 you shouldn't have done that. No, we come to a throne of grace where we're what? Welcome with all of your failings, with all of your shortcomings, with all of your areas which you goofed. Come, come. If you need help, come. You're welcomed here because of Jesus Christ. So I love the quote that, and this, well, this I'll quit. Uh, John Newton, the man who wrote what? Amazing Grace? Wrote this, wrote a hymn on prayer. Listen to what he said. He says, you are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such None can ever ask too much. That's a wonderful insight about grace. You can come to God and bring Him the biggest request you can imagine because He's gracious. Let's pray. Oh, Father of grace, how amazed we are at what You have given us and granted us in Christ. Lord, what we deserve is not what we've received. And we know that many times, Lord, we think we owe you because it's just incredibly too good to be true. Lord, therefore, we ask that you increase our faith. Faith to believe that you are a gracious God, that we have received grace upon grace through Jesus Christ. Even today, if there's someone here today, Lord, who says, how could I ever be accepted by God? Lord, give them faith to believe in Christ to believe the gospel and to admit their sins and to enjoy the wonders of your amazing grace. May the time around your table today, Lord, be a time in which we have sweet fellowship with you, the God of all grace. We ask it through Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand and we're going to sing together grace that is greater than our sin. Let's sing it like we mean it, all right?